Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome a new contributor this week. I want to welcome J.P. Cortez to the show. J.P., this is our first time meeting you, but take just a moment here to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. Hey, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Like you said, my name is J.P. Cortez. I'm the executive director of the Sound Money Defense League. Uh, We're a national public policy group working to remonetize gold and silver. Uh, We've found that the best way to do that on the state level is to remove all the disincentives, the taxes, and the regulations standing in the way of people using gold and silver as money. And that's music to my ears. (laughs) I've I've been a little bit of a precious metals bug for the last couple of decades, but I'm astonished when I hear about some of the hoops that some states make people jump through having to, you know, if you transfer it, you have to pay sales tax on it and so forth. And it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. so let's, let's set the stage here. Um, Specifically, I'm looking at your article here from Free the People about a gold and silver lining amid housing affordability crisis. States are removing barriers to sound money ownership. So let's start with What's going on with the the housing affordability crisis? By the way, I'm right in the midst of this too. My wife and I moved a couple of years ago. We're still waiting for prices to come down from the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And see, it's not just you. This is a very American problem right now. Uh, The the dream of home ownership is becoming uh, increasingly more elusive for average Americans. And, you know, more than just uh, a a domicile, a home is an important part of an American's portfolio. Uh, Many for for decades now, Americans have been using home ownership as a means of saving money, even growing money. Uh, But uh, like I said, unfortunately, that avenue has closed for so many. And despite that being the case, states themselves are waking up to the reality that they don't have to stand by while uh, traditional saving methods are closing on so many people. And while the federal government and the Federal Reserve are debasing the purchasing power of their money. Let's so t- states are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So states are removing these taxes, removing the disincentives and making it easier for people to invest as a savings unit, as a savings, uh, and also to use it as a money. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening to a person's money. You say, say they've got a nice fat bank account, but all that money sitting in there isn't just quietly sitting and waiting Something is happening to it, and and its purchasing power is evaporating. Why is that? What you're describing there is the inflation tax, and this is a an especially pernicious tax because most Americans don't even realize it's happening. Uh, you know, the the stated purpose, the Federal Reserve's stated purpose, is to devalue the currency by two percent a year. Now, if you've been into a grocery store, or if you've paid an energy bill in the last two to three years, you know that it's far more than two percent. So with that being, with there being an intentional policy of currency debasement happening here, holding dollars becomes a losing proposition, right? Your your options are very limited. You can hold the dollars and be penalized with this inflation tax. You can try to invest the dollars and invest in risky stock markets and uh, ETFs, mutual funds and bonds that people don't even really understand that carry a lot of risk. Uh, or you can spend it today, which incentivizes or encourages consumerism to try to get the most out of your purchasing power of the dollars today. So you're not left with any good options. So the, the money itself has failed, right? It, historically, people simply held the money when they wanted to save. And that made a lot of sense when, in many cases, gold was the money. But that's not the case anymore. So holding holding dollars, putting dollars in your mattress it, is a losing deal. That sounds so counterintuitive, but you're absolutely right. So what happened? 
There, I mean, what we, we think of money as, you know, that figure I see when I look up my bank account. Okay, what's the balance? What's the difference between that and, say, a, a silver coin that I can hold in my hand? There's an entire uh, American doctoral history that, you know, people spend their lives studying this this thing. Uh, what happened here in American money dating back to uh, the original Constitution its intent, the founder's intent, going then to the Civil War where Lincoln had to suspend uh, the constitutional uh, provisions uh, to fund the Civil War, then going to the the establishment of the Federal Reserve, the establishment of the income tax, and ultimately FDR making it illegal in the United States to even own gold. So for a long time now, the powers that be have, have intentionally removed gold from the American financial system. To be sure, the gold standard did not fail. It was killed. It was killed by dishonest politicians who dislike honest money. So with with the destruction of of America's money taking place, markets themselves are starting to 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 try to innovate within this space. And we're seeing a lot of really excellent innovation in money uh, these days between fractional gold, being able to, to transact gold digitally, things on the crypto side, Bitcoin specifically. Uh-huh. So so removing the, the briars and the thorn bushes that regulators put in the way uh, is, is what allows for this kind of innovation and growth. And as we've seen, America it, America has been a bad steward of its monetary instrument. And it's it's not just the inflation. While while that's a horrible part of it, it's it's all of the things that being able to print money enables. An endless an endless supply of money, being able to print money endlessly enables endless war. We've seen for decades America has been fighting wars of choice, and they're doing that because they're financially, monetarily, fiscally able to do so. And if you end the war, if you if you cut that ability to print money endlessly, I think you'll find that a lot of things like this, a lot of things like endless war, a lot of things like domestic surveillance programs or a Ponzi entitlement schemes, these things will fall to the wayside. Wow. There is so much truth in what you have just said. And yet for, for a lot of people, gold and silver seems really archaic. And, and mm-hmm. I, I have to wonder about where that attitude comes from. Did something better come along? at least in the form of, you know, electronic money? Or, you know, is is this still, as it has been for thousands of years of recorded human history, you know, a means of, of preserving value? Um, although I guess there are probably some downsides to, to using precious metals as well. Let's talk about uh, sales taxes, particularly states that uh, mm-hmm. charge a sales tax when you transfer gold or silver between people. Absolutely. And this is a practice that's happening still in seven states across the country in the United States. These are states that when you walk into a gold dealer to buy an American U.S. minted gold eagle, these states will charge you a sales tax, a 7% uh, or or whatever the state sales tax rate is on top of the price of, of the coin. And that's wrong for so many reasons. Constitutionally, this is wrong. Article 1, Section 10, declare that gold and silver, those, it's the only form of money mentioned in the Constitution, gold and silver. Uh, it, it's also wrong um, on a regulatory front, right? Sales taxes are charged on consumable final goods. So when you charge a sales tax on a hamburger or on a pair of shoes, that's because the, the consumer is, is using up, quote unquote, is consuming this good. That's not the case with gold and silver. They're held for resale. So they're closer to investment assets or commodities or even money uh, than a consumable good. And so that actually underscores how in, in these seven states, 
And in the case of states that still charge a capital gains tax, not to mention the federal capital gains tax on top of that, there are states that are triple taxing gold and silver, having their cake wow. and eating it too, treating it both as a, a final consumed consumable good and as a capital asset. So it's an unfair treatment, if nothing else, of gold and silver as far as uh, from a tax or regulatory perspective. Wow. I, I That just boggles my mind. It, the only thing I've heard that really, you know, really made sense as far as, so what What do you mean, you know, they're going to charge? It says legal tender, right? They're on, depending on where mm-hmm. it was minted, you know, but the U.S. minted ones, legal tender right there. And yet, if I go to ask someone, can you break a 20? Do they charge me sales tax for doing it? Exactly. No. Exactly right. If you went into a gas station and you ex- tried to exchange $1 for four quarters and the gas station clerk told you that there would be a tax on that transaction, you would say you're out of your mind. This this is an asinine practice. I'm simply exchanging one form of money for another. And that's exactly what you're doing when you're ex- exchanging U.S. Federal Reserve notes, which aren't even the constitutional meaning of a dollar. They're, they're now unbacked paper IOUs. And you're exchanging those for actual constitutional money. It is wrong to levy a tax on that transaction. So let's, we've got about one minute left, but let's, let's just briefly talk about people who want to, to learn more about this. I'm sure there are some great resources, especially let's start with your own, but uh, where would you direct them to, to get their minds around this subject? I would encourage everyone to check out uh, soundmoneydefense.org. That is uh, the Sound Money Defense League's website. Uh, And, you know, I I do want to say anyone within the sound of my voice, I encourage you to be an active participant in your legislature. You have a power in your state capital. So these legislative projects, I believe we have 26 and 26 states we're introducing and working to pass pro sound money legislation. The phone calls, the emails to the Capitol, that's what moves the needle. That's what makes a difference. So please check out soundmoneydefense.org. You can check me out at Twitter at jpcortez.com uh, for updates and, and legislative movements. This really makes me happy that you are are spreading this message. And, and it's not because, well, I'm worried there's going to be an economic collapse. I do have worries about that. But more than anything, I just want to know that uh, what my savings represent is safe. And I don't feel like it's safe, you know, whether it's dollars stuffed in the mattress or dollars sitting in a bank account. As you mentioned, that inflation tax has taken a pretty big bite. And this is a way to to perhaps uh, avoid those those difficulties. Again, we're talking with J.P. Cortez. He is a Young Voices contributor and uh, J.P., wonderful to hear from you. Once again, where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter or X. That's at J.P. Cortez 27. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Ezra Wyrick to the show. This is uh, his first appearance on Moving Forward. Um, he's a Young Voices contributor, and I, I bet you wear a few other hats as well. Ezra, take a moment and tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. My name is Ezra Wyrick. I'm a writer and consultant from the state of Tennessee. I work as a youth outreach administrator for the Liberty Whip. And yeah, I, I do wear a, a few other hats. I used to be the director of communications for the Liberty Youth Coalition. Uh, I've had a variety of other jobs in the Liberty Movement. I've done some lobbying for the Defend the Guard organization, trying to get Defend the Guard passed in Tennessee. I'm uh, very passionate about liberty-oriented issues. And I've done quite a bit of freelance writing, but I haven't had too many of my writings published in any major publications. 
uh, up until now. And I think that's one of the reasons that I joined the Young Voices program is to just really, you know, get my writings out there into some bigger publications. I had written for the Mises Institute before, the Mises Wire. But as far as any, you know, bigger publications, I had not done that. So just a big shout out to Young Voices for giving me that opportunity. Well, let's talk about your article that I have here in front of me. This was from AmericanThinker.com, Privatize or Bust, What Australia Teaches Us About Social Security. And as soon as I read the word Social Security, I was like, ooh, it's an election year. That's got to be a hot-button topic. First of all, let's set the stage, Ezra. How How is Social Security these days? Last time I heard it, it uh, was kind of wheezing along on life support. Has its condition improved? That's exactly the case. No, the condition has not improved at all. I, I mean, I don't think that a lot of Americans understand like the gravity of the situation, right? Uh, they think, oh, Social Security is going to be insolvent 2030, 2035. It's no big deal, right? Well, wrong. What we're talking about is $22 trillion in unkept promises that the U.S. government made to seniors. $22 trillion. Um, pe- people don't really understand what what the whole insolvency thing means. They think, oh, it just means that Congress can just start giving more money to the program and then it'll be no big deal, right? Well, wrong on that point as well. You know as well as I do that Congress has a problem appropriating funds to anything pretty much. Do you think they're going to be able to uh, contribute funds every year, appropriate funds every year to Social Security without having, you know, a big partisan hullabaloo? Absolutely not. Um, So right now, Social Security is operating on life support because there's about, uh, I believe, $2.8 trillion in the trust fund. Allegedly, that's the official number. And once that runs out in 2030 or 2035, there won't be any more money in the trust fund. Therefore, they will have to look to Congress to appropriate funds for the program. And that's going to be a big problem. And and it sounds like one of the big complications with that is there's an, a very greatly increasing number of people coming into being recipients of those funds and not nearly as many paying into it. You've got fewer people pulling the wagon and more people piling exactly. on to be pulled. Talk to me about retirement savings, though. Thank goodness everybody has their retirement savings and has taken that seriously, right? <laughs> well, no. Uh, I think about half of all baby boomers in the United States have no so have no uh, retirement savings. And I think the reason for that is very clear. Um, they think that Uncle Sam will provide, right? Well, the issue is that Uncle Sam is broke. And Uncle Sam is having a very hard time keeping promises that were made to elderly people. And it's going to have a harder time in the future. So when we think about retirement savings, what we think about is a situation in which people say, okay, I want to put some money aside for, you know, I'm going to be retiring someday. I'm going to be out of the workforce. I want to put some money aside so that whenever, whenever I get to that point that I'll be able to, you know, live the good life. Well, with Social Security, what we have is a program, which I frankly think was a mistake from the get-go, but now the cat is out of the bag, so it's a moot point. What we have is a situation where the government has said, well, no, give us give us your retirement savings. Let, let us handle your retirement savings. And what we find is, is a situation where the government has made promises to elderly people that they're not going to be able to keep, and those elderly people are not going to be too happy about that. Wow. Now, you mentioned in your article that, uh, you know, your generation, I I believe your generation Z, correct? That's correct. 
you guys don't have a lot of faith <laughs> that it's going to be around. I'm a I'm a uh, Gen Xer, and I don't believe it's going to be around for mm-hmm. me either. There, there has mm-hmm. to be a better way. Talk to me about what Australia is doing that uh, might actually be something that we should be looking toward in terms of, uh, you know, how to how to solve our social security problem. So obviously, Australia is not really the first country that comes to mind when you think about a country that has it all together, right? <laughs> like in, in any regard. Uh, but surprisingly, uh, to me as well, that they seem to have figured out pensions pretty well. They seem to have figured out retirement savings pretty well. Australia has something, um, it's pretty long-winded, it's called the superannuation guarantee. Basically, what that means is that unlike in the United States where the government takes funds away from your check every year uh, or every time you get a paycheck, the government takes funds away to contribute to the trust fund, uh, the superannuation guarantee works this way. Employers take those funds. Employers are required to deposit money. The government doesn't get to touch it, and this goes into a retirement savings account. Those retirement savings accounts are not managed by the Australian government. They're managed by a number, hundreds actually, uh, of private providers, which the uh, which the senior citizen or the person in the workforce can choose from. So retire and, and what we see as a result of this is that retirement savings are very, very high in Australia. And it's not just pensions that are high; it's individual retirement savings are high. And why is this? Well, it gets back to the point in Australia citizens have been giving an incentive to save money, right? But in the U.S., like I said, they think Uncle Sam will provide. Uncle Sam is handling my retirement savings. I don't need to save for retirement. So what that means in the United States is that when Uncle Sam can no longer keep those promises, when Uncle Sam can no longer provide Social Security benefits, there's millions of Americans that are going to have nothing to fall back on. That's a scary prospect. (laughs) But... I, you know, and I, I agree with you, by the way, Ezra, that uh, Australia is not the first place I would have thought of. But I do like the idea that it put, that what they're doing places more responsibility on the individual. And uh, this is just my opinion. I think one of the places where we went wrong here in America is Social Security more or less encouraged us. Go ahead and outsource it. We'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. Exactly. But but we do have to worry about it. Otherwise, you know, our generations wouldn't be going Nah, It's it's not going to be here. It's going to be used up. So what what prevents changes from taking place within the social security system? Is it just that there's so many people currently dependent on it that, you know, inertia keeps them from from wanting to, to change anything? Well, it's that. It's a lot of partisan uh, bickering and political posturing, just like with any other issue. And the probably one of the dirtiest words in American politics today Social Security is one of those uh, third rail issues. So one of the dirtiest words is privatization, right? Oh, you're going to take retirement savings and put them into private hands and and the government's not going to manage them or you want old people to die. You want old people to be poor. But the reality is that semi-private, I won't say completely private, but semi-private retirement programs such as Australia has perform much better. If the goal of Social Security is to... If the goal if the goal of Social Security is to make seniors and people in the workforce save more for retirement, then it's not accomplishing that goal. But in Australia, their system is. So if that is really the goal, then the private system is working much better in that regard. 
I would trust people to, to buckle down and, you know, do their diligence and figure out, you know, what's the better way to, to invest this money to, to get a better return. Um, I've seen comparisons. If I had invested the money taken out from my paycheck to Social Security in my own, you know, uh, choice of funds, it would be worth this much more. And it's it's millions more. And, and it just seems like there's no comparison. But we still, you know, cling to, well, but this is the way we've always done it. I, I wish we could break that, that uh, cycle. Absolutely. I wish we could break the cycle as well as a Zoomer. I, w- I actually wish that I could just opt out of the Social Security program altogether. Therefore, when it does become insolvent and I'm not going to get benefits, I've not contributed you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that I could have saved for my own retirement. Now, that is a great point, and unfortunately, that's the point we're going to have to end on. Again, we're talking with Ezra Wyrick. Ezra, where can people follow you? Where can they find you on social media? You can follow me on Twitter, at Ezra for Liberty. I do have a Substack which isn't active right now. I do some other writing. I have some other, uh, you know, things that I'm doing in, in the Liberty movement as well. Um, but you can follow me at Ezra for Liberty. And I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this. Thank you so much. And we are back. This is segment three of Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome another new contributor to uh, Young Voices. Her name is Zaina Resley. And Zaina, I'd love it if you take just a second and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on today. I work in state government affairs at a DC think tank, and I travel across the states meeting with local level officials. And I have the privilege of getting to educate state level officials on free market policy options. And I work on a wide range of issues with my personal favorites, including cutting red tape, zoning and land use reform and immigration. My regional expertise is in the Southwest. And likewise, I'm an Arizona native whose parents work in real estate. Well, that would make sense why I'm looking at an article from you about uh, how Arizona's uh, housing headache is hitting home for realtors. And I live out in the West as well. I I live in southern Idaho. But uh, in the last few years, we have seen real estate prices go skyward. We've seen real estate inventories uh, very much in demand, gobbled up. Too few homes, too many buyers as people have been relocating. Um, Talk to me a little bit about Arizona's uh, situation um, is is it still is it as bad as it was for so many of these western states just a couple of years ago, or has, has their situation improved in terms of homes available and and affordable prices? Unfortunately, it is actually getting worse. Ooh. Arizona's needed to build more homes the past twenty years, but we are seeing huge net migration to the state that has been going on now for a long time, and we're seeing the biggest populations coming from California, Washington, and Illinois. And as all these people are moving to the beautiful state of Arizona, we are just not able to keep up with demand. There's not enough construction happening, and right now there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape. And with that red tape, there just isn't the to have enough housing built to meet the demand of people coming in. So I'm curious if the, obviously the bureaucratic red tape is, is going to present some barriers. Does the, uh, does the, the price or, or at least the cost of housing and cost of materials, if you want to build housing, is that uh, playing into this as well? The costs, um, would you mind repeating, is the cost of building also going into it as yeah. well? Yes. 
Yes. Um, some different zoning proposals that lawmakers have introduced to try and reduce these costs, such as building by right, would make this easier. But the zoning laws in place now make the development process much more expensive. So those costs are also going in as to a factor of why things aren't getting built as quickly and why things are so expensive at the moment. Now, this isn't just affecting, though, people who are actually looking for a home. Talk to me a little bit about the realtors and, and what this is doing to, to their profession. Yes. Right now, there is intensified competition among real estate brokers. With this growing disparity between the demand and supply, and as prices go upward, there just isn't enough houses to sell for them. And a lot of people, I was looking at statistics, there's a bunch of real estate brokers in Arizona who are working part-time. Month by month, we're seeing more people forego their license renewal altogether because there just isn't enough houses to sell. So they're looking for other employment opportunities. So right now, when there is a good listing for a house, there's tons of realtors going vying for those different opportunities. So it really is challenging their livelihoods at the moment. That is something that I am hearing from friends in Southern Idaho as well, that, uh, you know, people who got a realtor's license, I'll just do this as kind of a sideline, or maybe I'm ready to shift into a little different career. And that they're telling me very much what you're saying. You know, they, it's it's expensive to be a realtor, to get out there and promote yourself, to, to stay up to date, all the continuing education and so forth. But uh, they spend a lot of money with without a lot of inventory to work with. That must be agonizing to go through. Yes. So what are lawmakers doing in Arizona, if anything, to, to ease some of those difficulties? Last session, there was a bill proposal going through advocating for building by right, a really extensive package. And it got shot down mostly due to the Arizona League of Cities and Towns. So what we've been seeing the past few sessions, there are lawmakers really trying to tackle this issue, but the most local level governing boards are really fighting against it because they don't want to lose any of their authority or they might they don't they fear that some reforms might infringe upon their authority in making pivotal zoning decisions this go around lawmakers are really feeling pressure from their constituents that this has just gotten out of hand so there's been over a dozen bills filed aimed at tackling this some proposals we've seen because there's various ways to tackle this crisis in the past two years we now can have um accelerated dwelling units adus and they call them in arizona casitas mm -hmm. in phoenix and Tucson. So now there's two cities allowing for that, which slightly eases these costs we're seeing. But now we're also seeing people pushing for um, changing from commercial to residential zoning in some areas. Since the pandemic, we've seen some office closure and there's some commercial lots that aren't even being used anymore. So those are some certain ideas that are going through the legislative process this session, as well as some things advocating for building more duplexes and triplexes. But it's hard to see it make the distance because these local zoning boards are going to try and attack it with everything they can so that it doesn't make it to the finish line. So what do people do when, when housing is so difficult to come by? I, I imagine for someone who is, say, moving to Arizona, looking for housing, uh, that's that's got to be an added layer of stress, just knowing that, uh, that they and a lot of other people are all competing for a very limited number of, of units. 
Definitely. Some people are coming to the state and they're having to look for housing that isn't ideally what they were looking for. They're having to opt for a smaller house in a less desirable neighborhood. Or some people are just renting instead of buying altogether with the interest rates compounded with the house, um, the housing prices. They're just opting to rent in the meantime because it's just not in their range to buy at the moment. And this is especially affecting first-time home buyers or people that are wanting to buy for the first time. They're just not having that option available to them. And is there any movement? I mean, you mentioned, was it the Association of uh, Cities and, and Counties? I, I, I didn't get the name exactly. Yes, the Arizona Leagues of Cities and Towns. Okay, that's that sounds like a, that sounds very similar to other uh, lobbying organizations that I've encountered in other states where I've lived. They seem to have an immense amount of power. What's what's the, the reason for, for their uh ability to to work within you know the legislative halls and and to to help determine policy because it seems like no matter which state I, I've lived in there's always been some group or special interest like that 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 has a lot of uh, clout when it comes to these kinds of questions definitely. definitely well firstly they're very good with messaging they will go and tell constituents well if you let any of these things pass and you don't reach out to your representative there is going to be a giant apartment complex directly next to your house and the value of your house is going to absolutely plummet and they scare people and they really feed off of that sort of nimby attitude and so messaging is a big thing if they can induce fear in the locals saying they're going to just completely turn your neighborhood upside down people are going to be calling their local representatives saying you cannot let this pass this is going to ruin my house ruin my property value and ruin my neighborhood and so they really are good at messaging and that's how i've seen them be able to grab this power in different states because other states i've looked at like you said are having this exact same problem as these local boards that have all of this power but i think a lot of it is messaging and people really do buy into the messaging now i could be wrong and i'm okay if you want to correct me on this but it seems like these organizations also have some pretty deep pockets meaning if they want to back particular political candidates they can contribute quite a bit you know towards uh, campaigning and 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 that sort of thing um it's hard to go up against that kind of money if you're just a person who look i just want a place to live i want an affordable home for me and my family i'm not on the same footing as them definitely i can speak to that in some of the states i look at as although i wouldn't know every state but definitely these organizations from what i've seen do have a lot of financial backing so is is there any sign of movement in the arizona legislature i like i said where where the the political dollars will flow through a lot of these special interests um that's very helpful to politicians and i think would probably make them more sympathetic you know the person who shows up with a nice five-figure check in their hand versus the person who just says hey i have a concern i have a hunch one's going to get a little more attention than the other do you see any movement on the part of politicians to to show some flexibility in addressing this I have seen positive movement this cycle, which is really, it is good to see. And the reason why I say that is I'm seeing the legislature work together bipartisanly. We are seeing leaders on the Democratic side and the Republican side working together, sponsoring bills together to try and make this change. And when that tends to happen and you're seeing everyone in the legislature work together, I think that that is a positive indicator that change will be made. Well, in the meantime... (laughs) It's got to be an interesting time uh, for both legislators as well as uh, realtors. Um, How far out are the projections that that it's going to be like this? Does anybody foresee or anybody uh, have a sense that uh, this is just a cycle or a season and and it's, it's not going to last forever? 
I think as time goes on, Arizona, especially Maricopa County, where Phoenix and Scottsdale sits, is gaining a lot of national attention of people wanting to move here. So I think that people are going to keep flowing into the state. So I think until it's addressed, it's going to continue being an issue because it's a great thing that people want to live in Arizona. But with that comes a cost. Again, we are talking with Zaina Resley. She works in state government affairs in a DC think tank. She's also a contributor with Young Voices. Uh, Zaina, where can people find you on social media? My ex handle is at Zaina Resley, and you can see all of my work there, as well as that is the same handle for my LinkedIn. And I also put my op eds and work on there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today, and I'm happy to welcome yet another new contributor, Samuel Underhill, joining us. Sam, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Fantastic. Take just a minute here to uh, tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, first, thanks for having me on. I'm a student currently studying economics at the University of Alabama. Um, my main project for the last year or so has been serving as the executive director of the Activate Gen Z project. Um, we're a nonprofit dedicated to basically just involving American youth in politics. We've created some internship search tools, some high school classroom resources, educational resources, uh, et cetera, rolling out some voter registration efforts for 2024. Um, it's a bit conflictual for me as a conservative-leaning libertarian to be focusing all of my efforts on uh, getting out youth vote just because it tends to be a little bit more left-leaning. But um, I'm a huge believer in you know letting people decide. My motto has always been you know inform people and then let them make the decision for themselves. So um, I think that ties really into my piece that I wrote about uh, in Real Clear History about the Electoral College, because there's really nothing, in my opinion, that's uh, wrong with the Electoral College, but uh, the tie break just seems to get in the way of people really using their voices. Yeah, I noticed that you talk about the two-party system, and and I completely agree with this assessment, by the way. It always seems to come down to, well, you'll have to choose between two horrible candidates, but there's your choices, now go vote. It feels like we're always being shoehorned into a choice that we really wouldn't want to make. So where do we begin right. a, a discussion about reforming the Electoral College or undoing the two-party system? Where do we start? Yeah, sure. So I think it's important to like set, set the stage first. Um, the Electoral College has been you know, a hot topic forever in American politics, right? Um, for decades, both parties have flip-flopped on both sides of the issue. Um, so it's not really something that we can easily change uh, because there's always one party that's vehemently opposing it, uh, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. Um, so you're not really going to get 75% of states to support an amendment to the Constitution to change it, uh, regardless of what you know time you're at. So personally, I don't think the Electoral College is the problem in America. Um, we were founded as states, so I think it's important to give those smaller states some outsized voice in exchange for essentially what amounts to their sovereignty. Um, but I think history shows that the Electoral College isn't a bad thing either, right? For every single election, um, except for 1824, which I talk about in my article, um, which was due largely to the Electoral College tiebreak and, you know, 2020, which has largely been fixed by Congress since then. Um, I think the Electoral College has worked great. So in 1824, just to give some background, um, Andrew Jackson is the front runner in the race, right? He gets 41% of the vote and John Quincy Adams gets 30% of the vote. So neither of them reach a majority. Um, and instead of, you know, going to a runoff election, the Electoral College sends it to Congress. So um, what John Quincy Adams did 
he was the second place runner. Um, he didn't really do any campaigning for himself in Congress, but as every person who's taken a civics class will know, um, he went to the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, and he said, hey, let's make a deal. And so Henry Clay uses his influence, whether, you know, it's unethical or ethical for two people to be deciding a whole election. Um, you know, he goes around to his friends in Congress and he's like, hey, um, I'm getting a secretary of state position for this. Let's just vote John Quincy Adams into the White House. Um, and so this problem could easily resurface in 2024. And that's what I talk about in my article. And it could be a lot worse this time because in 1824, a lot of these candidates had support in Congress already to support them, right? Um, it wasn't this rigid two-party system that we have today. But in 2024, it's essentially uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress. And there's a lot of independent candidates that could legitimately receive support, um, but don't really have the backing in Congress to do so. So one of the candidates that I talk about in my article is Robert F. Kennedy. Um, he's a very strong independent candidate. He's polling as high as, you know, 18% in some of these three-way polls with Trump and Biden when they're both polling at like 30%. So it's like, a, it's a 10-point margin. It's a lot stronger than even, you know, Ross Perot did um, back in the 90s. So, uh, you know, he's polling ahead of Trump and Biden in, you know, voters under 45, mothers with children. Um, there's a lot of age groups where he's making real inroads. So it's, it's definitely not fair to just discount him, say, oh, he never would have a chance of winning anyway. Um, you know, I'm not a big Kennedy fan to begin with, uh, but he definitely deserves a, a voice in, in a race where, you know, 70% of America doesn't want either candidate. So um, unfortunately, due to the structure of the Electoral College, this seems to be uh, not really a possibility because for those of you who don't know, um, the Electoral College tiebreak, uh, if no candidate gets to a majority of electors in the Electoral College, it goes to Congress. And the way that the tiebreak works is that every single state gets one delegation of electors or one delegation in the vote. So um, every single representative in Congress gets to vote and they get one vote either for the Republican candidate, Democrat candidate, or technically the independent candidate. But I think it's very telling uh, the way that the media references this. They, they don't talk about the candidates that they're going to vote for. They say, oh, this is a Republican delegation. This is a Democratic delegation, right? So really, the, the independent just never has a say in the election. And that's kind of the main problem. So like you, I, I, I'm not a Trump fanboy, but I, I, I would prefer him if the choice was, would you like to be shot in the head or shot in the stomach? Well, I'll, okay, I'll take the shot <laughs> in the stomach if that's what Trump is, you know, but I really don't want to right. be shot in the first place. I really would like a candidate I could actually get behind. Um, of course. But there's so much power at stake and there's so much um, money and influence at stake. I, I have to wonder, within the two-party system, what would it take to to get some kind of movement to, to be able to break free of this status quo, because it seems like they're, they're holding on for dear life. Right. Um, I think one of the first things that you have to realize is that the, the largest group of political Americans at this point in the country is unaffiliated, right? That recently, actually, just within the first few years, unaffiliated Americans became a larger group than either Republicans or Democrats. So there's definitely, you know, these people are voting in primaries, but they don't really have a place to call home. So I think a great example of something that could be done um, is the No Labels movement, which was recently, you know, unsuccessful, but they made a big push. They made, they got on a lot of headlines. They had, you know, uh, Larry Hogan and Joe Manchin at the top of their potential ticket for 2024. Um, I think it would really just take First, you know, if you're not going to reform the tiebreak system, which, again, would take 75 percent of states, um, then you have to get at least a viable third party in the mix. But I think 
reforming the tie break uh, would be the straightest way forward just because it's a more moderate solution. Um, it doesn't really require any shakeup politically. It just says if there is the option, um, is, if there is a, a push for moderates to become a bigger presence in Congress, um, then they would have a more viable option to get a president presidential candidate. So. Well, <laughs> I know I've been looking forward to this year with just kind of a, a small sense of dread, but uh, but it's good to hear that there there's some thinking on on how we might break out of the the contentiousness and 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 again that that being locked into a system that that always seems to come down to two very poor choices. Where is that likely to begin? Will it begin in the state legislatures? Will it begin in the the national Congress? Who who initiates that kind of reform? So I think it, it's. Uh, it's important to talk about which reform you're talking about, right? So if you're talking about making um, independent parties, I think, uh, you know, whether it's a coalition of parties or one major third party that emerges, um, that would emerge more on a grassroots level. Uh, but when you're talking about an amendment that has to be passed to, you know, change the Constitution, that's going to have to be uh, probably a, you know, there's there's definitely a fair moderate presence in Congress of candidates like Joe Manchin, um, like, you know, the senators like Mitt Romney, who voted to impeach Trump, but don't really have a political home. Um, there's definitely a, a group in Congress that would be willing to, you know, um, uh, push forward this type of reform. But it would definitely for, for an amendment, it would definitely have to start on the federal level. And it doesn't necessarily require, you know, we have to dismantle the Electoral College as it is. Which right. I, I know for right. I I don't think I'm I'm that rigid in my ideology, but man, I don't want I don't want to mess with I, I think the founders gave us a really decent system, especially, you know, considering, you know, we we have a lot of information available to us. They had quite a bit of information in that they were very studied and, and um they they understood history and the different types of government. I think they did better with less information than we're doing with virtually unlimited information. For sure. And I think it's important to make the distinction between uh, what would be better and what would be uh, ideal. So the Electoral College, you know, whether it's the ideal system or not, the, the fact of the matter is if 50 percent of the country is benefiting from it as an institution, you're never going to get an amendment passed to completely abolish it. Um, that needs, you know, 75 percent support from the nation. No, that that makes sense. So I, I'm going to ask you, we've got about a minute left here, but uh, Sam, what what do you see happening if you can prognosticate for me what what are the likely prospects of what we could see in in this coming election? Trump's had a lot of stuff thrown at him, but it, it looks like he's about to roll up the GOP nomination. Um, do you think Biden's even going to stay in the race? I'm just asking for opinion is all. Yeah, yeah. Um, personally, to me, Biden doesn't look like a viable candidate. Um, I think the Democratic National Convention is probably going to you know realize that at some point in the next few months, um, even though you know he's made his foray into TikTok recently or whatever, trying to make himself look more viable. But um, yeah, at this point, it looks like Trump's going to, you know, cakewalk back into the White House, whether Robert Kennedy can put up a, you know, a, a viable campaign and actually get on a debate stage remains to be seen. But right now, um, my bet would be on Trump. Okay. I appreciate your thoughts on this. Again, we're talking with Samuel Underhill. He is a Young Voices contributor. Sam, where can people follow your work and where can they find you on social media? Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I'm at Sam Underhill underscore. And then for my nonprofit, the Activate Gen Z Project, you can find all of our resources at activategenz.org. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks again. I appreciate it.